You know, one of my favorite lines is a line I heard several years ago in a story involving famous boxer Muhammad Ali. Apparently he was on a flight from Chicago to Los, An- Las-, Las Vegas and he didn't have his seatbelt on and so the flight attendant came by and she told him to please buckle his seatbelt and Ali said to her, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant responded, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) Uh, I love that comeback. Uh, I love a good comeback, period. And of course, if you're like me, when you think of comebacks, you typically think of the sports world. And there have been more than a few of those, like one that will remain nameless that involves a former Michigan quarterback and my favorite NFL team, the Atlanta Falcons, in the Super Bowl a few years ago. But as I said, that will remain nameless. We won't talk about that. But one of my favorite comebacks I will tell you about involves a young girl by the name of Kayla Montgomery. At the age of 14, Kayla was diagnosed with MS, but she didn't let that stop her from doing one of the things that she loved to do most, and that was Running. In fact, as a senior in high school, Kayla became one of the top runners in the state of North Carolina, and she went on to compete at the state championships. She was so good, she went on to compete at the state championships for the 3,200 meters. And she started the race fine, but about 100 meters in, a girl got a little bit too close to her, things got a little bit bunched up, and Kayla actually tripped and fell. She fell down, but she didn't stay down. She got back up and gradually was able to work her way back to the other girls and eventually got right behind the leaders and with about 200 meters to go, Kayla took the lead and never looked back, going on to win the girls' state championship from flat on her face to a state champion. Now that's what I call a good comeback. Speaking of comebacks, I heard a story about three guys who were talking about what they would want to have said at their funerals. And one guy said, well, I want people to say that I was a a great husband and father. Another guy said, well, I want people to say that I was an accomplished man and, and did lots of good things. And the third guy said, I want people to say, look, he's moving. Of course, Easter is really about celebrating a completely different comeback altogether. It's about celebrating the greatest comebacks from what seemed like the greatest of setbacks. And Jesus's comeback is more than a piece of trivia or an incredible event because Jesus's comeback has implications for our lives both today and on into eternity. And today I just want to take some time to to help us to consider some of those implications that his comeback has for our lives, and not just on the other side of the grave, as I mentioned, but on this side of the grave in our lives here and now. But before we can talk about the implications for our lives here and now, I think we need to go back to his comeback then and there. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 24, or you can follow along on the screen uh, as the gospel writer Luke gives his account. Here's what he writes, starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering... About this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. You know, I think it's easy for us sometimes to read the resurrection story with a little bit of spiritual snobbery. You know, it almost seems crazy to us, knowing what we know, that everybody has trouble. Everybody in the story has trouble getting the point and understanding what really has happened. You know, when the women arrive and find the empty tomb, they don't immediately assume that Jesus has risen from the dead the way that we do when we read the story. Instead, they stand there kind of just scratching their heads, wondering what has happened. It's not even in their thought process that he's risen from the dead. It takes a supernatural account with angels for them to even entertain the thought. And then they return to the apostles and report what they've heard and seen from the angels. But to the apostles, it says, Luke says that their words seemed like nonsense. And so Peter decides to go and and check out the tomb for himself. But even after hearing what the angels had told the women and what the women had told Peter and the other apostles, when Peter gets to the tomb and he finds it empty, he too stands there just kind of scratching his head, wondering what had happened. Three different times it's mentioned how difficult a time Jesus' own followers had with the notion that Jesus had risen from the dead. Of course, we read the story today, right? And we know the end. And, and so we, want, we say basically, well, what's, what's there to wonder about, right? I mean, he's risen from the dead. How dense do you have to be? How can you not see it, right? But of course, we read this from the vantage point of knowing the end of the story. And perhaps the fact that it seems so simple to us is a reflection of how little we understand the world that they were living in. They simply never saw the comeback coming. And maybe that's because they had a couple of preconceived notions working against them. One of the notions working against them was their understanding of who the Messiah was and what the Messiah was about and what he came to do. You know, no Jewish person really expected the Messiah to die, much less be crucified. And so there'd be no reason for the Messiah to have to be raised from the dead. If he's not going to die, there's no reason for him to be raised from the dead. That's partly the reason why when Jesus would talk to his apostles about suffering and being rejected and dying and then being raised to life, they would just kind of, they wouldn't really get it. They'd just stand there scratching their heads in confusion, wondering what he meant by all of that. It wasn't even in the scope of their imagination. Their expectation was that the Messiah would show up and he would fight God's battles against the wicked forces in power, especially or specifically the Roman Empire. They thought the Messiah would rebuild the temple and bring the justice of God and remake Israel into the most powerful nation in the world. And early on, when when Jesus shows up and he's doing miracles and he's feeding thousands with just sack lunches and preaching about the kingdom of God, he looked to be that person. But in the end, he wound up accomplishing none of those things that they had in their job description of the Messiah. 
He cleanses the temple, yes, but he doesn't rebuild it. And even more than that, he winds up becoming public enemy number one in the eyes of his own nation's religious leaders. He doesn't bring justice to their world, at least not in the way that they expected, but instead he suffers the injustice of a mock trial and he winds up dying at the hands of the evil Roman Empire instead of defeating them in battle. When Jesus died on the cross, nobody was saying, hey, just, just hang in there because you know, he died for our sins. So just hang in there three more days. He's going to come back. He, he'll be back. Nobody was even looking for that. They had no understanding of what truly was going on. Author and, and theologian N.T. Wright says, says it this way. I, I like how he puts it. He says the cross already had a symbolic meaning throughout the Roman world. It meant we Romans run this place. And if you get in our way, we'll obliterate you and do it pretty nastily too. Crucifixion meant that the kingdom hadn't come, not that it had. And crucifixion of a would-be Messiah meant that he wasn't the Messiah, not that he was. When Jesus was crucified, every single disciple knew what it meant. We backed the wrong horse. The game is over. This thing was done as far as the disciples were concerned. Jesus has wound up doing really none of the things that, you know, or Jesus had wound up doing things that never matched the job description they had in their minds for their Messiah. And so surely he couldn't have been the one. How in the world could he be risen from the dead if he wasn't the Messiah to begin with? And the fact that he died the way he did at the hands of the evil Roman Empire was a sure sign that he wasn't the Messiah they expected him to be. Another notion working against them was their own view of the resurrection. Now, the Jews did believe in a resurrection from the dead, but they believed that it would happen at, happen at the end of time on Judgment Day when God would raise everybody from the dead at once and bring a new heaven and a new earth to pass. But they never expected God to raise anybody in, you know, right in the middle of history. That, that was all for the end of the world when God would fix everything all at once. And I mentioned these preconceived notions, and there are others that I didn't mention, uh, that they were dealing with so that we can understand and at least have maybe a little bit of sympathy for why Jesus' followers had such a difficult time processing that Jesus' re resurrection had really happened. They weren't looking for a comeback. By the way, that's also one of the problems I have with the suggestions that some make in regard to alternative explanations for Jesus truly being raised from the dead. There are a number of people who claim that Jesus being raised from the dead, you know, it really didn't happen. It was just something that the disciples and the apostles made up, but it really wasn't true. They just wanted it to be true. But I just don't see that being the case. They, they weren't even looking for it. In fact, even after they saw Jesus, after he had risen, they had trouble truly grasping and accepting that it really was him. They claimed that he was a ghost until they saw him eat fish and bread with his own mouth. And, and then we read in places like Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, that even after days of spending time with him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. Now, the story of Jesus' resurrection has so much to say So much more to say than, than we can possibly grasp and process and absorb today. But I do want to give you three ways in which his comeback speaks to you and me today. And the first is this. His comeback tells us that his heart is always for us. 
His heart is always for us. And this is especially true when he doesn't do what we expect him to do or what we want him to do. And it's important for us to remember, especially during those times, that that doesn't mean that he's not working on our behalf. His heart is always for us, but at the same time, he won't be held hostage to our preconceived notions or our job descriptions about what he does or doesn't do, about what he can or can't do, about what he will or won't do, about what he should or shouldn't do. He's in the business of rolling away the stones and blowing off the lids of our boxes and our job descriptions that we try to put him in. Because the reality is that most of us at one time or another We'll probably go through a season or two in our lives where we become disillusioned because he didn't do what we thought he was going to do, where we thought he was going to do it, and in the time frame that we expected him to do it in. We're all going to go through times in our lives where we end up where we never thought we would end up. But that doesn't mean that he ceases to exist or that he ceases to care for us or that he ceases to be at work on our behalf. I like what the great Western writer Louis L'Amour writes. It's good writing and probably not bad theology when he says this, there comes a time in everyone's life when it seems as though everything has come to an end and that will be the beginning. And Jesus' comeback tells us that just because he doesn't do what we expect or want him to do or maybe even sometimes think we need him to do, that doesn't mean that he's not working on our behalf because his heart is always for us. And I hope we remember that and his comeback tells us that. And that leads to a second thing his comeback tells us. And it's this, his comeback tells us that his plan is so much bigger than us. His plan is so much bigger than us. His heart is always for us and his plan is so much bigger than us. His plan is so much bigger than ours. It involves so much more than us and it entails things that we just simply sometimes cannot see. You know, Jesus' followers couldn't see it at the time, but he was up to something so much bigger than simply delivering them from Roman bondage. This wasn't about Rome being defeated or Israel ruling the world. This was about someone else and something else being defeated and all of humanity being delivered from a far more serious bondage. His purposes were bigger than theirs, involved more people than them, and addressed things that they couldn't see that were far more threatening. It reminds me of something I was listening to not that long ago concerning the history of medicine and and surgery. And they talked about how there was a time long ago when any kind of surgery was basically considered life-threatening. And they referred to a time when surgery was being developed and more often than not, there was a, a high mortality rate for people who were having surgery, only it wasn't that they were dying on the operating table, but rather um, a great majority of them were dying after the surgery, from complications after the surgery. And, and, and physicians and, 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 and surgeons, they, they couldn't figure out why. And a huge part of the problem was because they knew so little about the world that they could not see about bacteria and germs. They knew so little about the invisible, microscopic world. And in many cases, that world was far more dangerous than the problems they were trying to solve with that particular surgery that they were doing. And when they began to understand bacteria and germs and infections, they began to develop sterilization procedures for their instruments during surgery. And it was then that the mortality rate 
dropped significantly. When physicians and surgeons began to see that the unseen world had incredible impact on the seen world, and they began to work from the perspective of that unseen world, an incredible difference was made. And in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God was addressing the biggest problem that, that we sometimes don't always see, at least not see the magnitude of it. And yet it has an indelible and profound impact on everything we do and see in our world. And that problem is the problem of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins. That he died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus' life and death and resurrection was all about dealing with unseen realities, the reality of sin and of restoring us to a relationship with God. And when we begin to work from that perspective, it's then that changes can be made in the seen world because things are being brought to, the, to order in the unseen world through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why I say that Jesus' comeback tells us that his plan is so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than our plans and, and it involves so much more than us and it entails things that we simply sometimes just cannot See, And then finally, very simply, his comeback tells us this, that he will not give up on us. His heart is always for us. That's the first thing that we learn from his comeback. We also learn that his comeback tells us that his plan is so much bigger than us, but also be reminded that his comeback tells us that he will not give up on us. Over and over, the resurrection story testifies to this. Just consider Peter, who denies Jesus three times, denies ever knowing Jesus. He claimed no association with him. And this happens within hours of Peter professing his undying devotion to Jesus to the extent that he says, Jesus, I'll go all the way to death for you. That's how far Peter says that he'll take it. And yet he denies Jesus three times, just hours after making that comment. Peter is... So often the picture of double-mindedness and hypocrisy, but note what the women are told by the angel at Jesus' tomb after his resurrection in Mark's account. Mark chapter 16, verse 7, the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, why would the angel specify Peter? I mean, it seems kind of redundant. Isn't Peter one of the apostles, one of the disciples? But could it be that the angel specified Peter because he was the one who had denied Jesus three times? And maybe Peter himself needed to know that Jesus wanted to see him specifically. And he had called him out by name and he still wanted a relationship with him. Jesus came back for Peter He wouldn't give up on him, even in his double-mindedness and hypocrisy. 
Or what about Thomas, who's often referred to as doubting Thomas? In John chapter 20, he refuses to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, even went as far as to say that he wouldn't believe unless he got to see the nail marks in Jesus' hands and actually put his hands in Jesus, or put his fingers in Jesus' hands and in his side to see if that truly was him. Thomas makes these demands, and yet Jesus, in his humility and grace, appears and meets everyone of Thomas's requests. He allows Thomas to take a few steps by sight so that he continue to, can continue to walk by faith. He came back for Thomas. He wouldn't give up on him. Or what about Mary Magdalene, who was once possessed by demons, property of the demonic, and yet she's the first of anybody to be told the good news of his resurrection. He came back for her as well. He wouldn't give up on her. Or what about Paul? We find him in Acts chapter 8 holding the, the coats of the religious leaders who are stoning a man by the name of Stephen to death for declaring that the resurrection of Jesus truly was real and it really did happen. In Acts chapter 9, we find Paul on his way to a city called Damascus to persecute followers of Jesus there. And on that Damascus road, Paul has a blinding encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He meets the very one whom his, he's been denying as the Son of God and persecuting those who claim to believe it. And Saul, who becomes Paul, his life is changed forever. Not just his name, but his life. Jesus came back for Paul. He wouldn't give up on him. Now think about what Jesus did through all four of those individuals. It was Peter who wound up starting the church in Jerusalem, preaching the sermon on Pentecost in which 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And from that event, the church worldwide that we are a part of today, 2,000 years later, was birthed. Peter would go on to lead the church in Jerusalem and even write some of what is in our New Testament. It was Thomas who went from goat to hero, he went from doubting Thomas to giving one of the most profound and heartfelt confessions of who Jesus truly is when he says of Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then there's Mary Magdalene, a woman once possessed by demons who again had the privilege of being the first person to spread the good news about Jesus that he truly was risen from the dead. Or what about Paul? All he did was write 13 letters, making up almost half of our New Testament. Paul went from persecuting Christians to helping others become Christians and grow in their faith. You see, Jesus coming back for them didn't just mean a comeback of their own. Jesus coming back for them also meant that others could make a comeback through the story of their comeback. A comeback from denial, a comeback from doubt, a comeback from spiritual oppression and, and possession, a comeback from all-out rebellion and rejection of Jesus, and their comebacks have led to countless other comebacks of others down through the century and across the globe. And today, the resurrection cries out that he's come back for each and every one of us. No matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. He's come back for you. And you may think he's done with you, but he's not. His heart is always for you. And his plan is always bigger 
than you. It, 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 it's bigger than your plan. It, it, it involves more people. It entails things that you simply may not see at times. And he has not given up on you. That's why he's come back for you. And not just so that you can have a comeback, but also so that others may, might have the opportunity to make a comeback of their own through your comeback story. And so I ask you today, in what areas of your life do you need a comeback? In what areas of your life do you need a comeback? Because he's come back for your comeback. He's the God of the comeback. And through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we too can experience a comeback. And each and every week, we give thanks and celebrate his comeback through sharing in communion, which we're going to do in just a few moments. Through the bread, we remember his body given for us on the cross. And through the juice, we remember his blood shed for us on the cross. But in doing so, we also remember that the cross was not the end. And the tomb they laid him in was not the end. It wasn't finished, but that he rose from the dead, that he came back and he came back so that you and I can come back, so that we can come back from our own hypocrisies and double-mindedness, from our own doubts, from our own spiritual oppression, from our own rebellion, so that you and I can come back from whatever tomb we find ourselves locked in and sealed behind. And so again, I ask each and every one of you, in what areas of your life do you need to come back? Because Jesus has come back for your comeback. I want to close this morning with the words of Peter, who knew what it was to have a comeback in his own life. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And this is from the Message Translation. What a God we have. And how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now.